You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Red buttons on Bracken. How you doing? I'm good. I'm rejuvenated. You're rejuvenated? You were off the radar this weekend. I think it took you, uh, I don't know, three days to get back to me. So I figured you were unplugged, brother. I was. I was uh, having a little bit of, I don't know, work and life stress starting to weigh on me. So I unplugged for a bit. Stayed away from it except for to keep track of the Spartan U.S. National Series race. But mm-hmm. got out got out in the sticks this weekend. This was the, what is it, fifth annual crawfish boil we do out here. Big time. So, so the night before is a, a nighttime bare hand crayfish catching session. You go out in the river and catch them or something? Go on the river with, with headlamps and you form a little... A little phalanx of 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 men, and we just walk the river, and you shine them, and you snatch them. Now, do you have a right, do you have a license and permit for that, Bracken? They're an invasive species; they want them gone. Yeah, you're far too far north to be having crawfish boils. You should be from Louisiana. It's real Cajun the way it's done, and it's done the right way. Toss them in, got the half corn on the cobs, the andouille sausage, everything boiling up. Dump it on a picnic table and get down but but the highlight is the night before so i we probably were snatching craws until 1 a.m that sounds amazing did uh do you use a net or do you use your hands we go hands you go straight hands no gloves nothing you just i wore gloves uh seth wore gloves ross though ross is fearless he 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 has no respect for their pinchers, so he just goes straight hands. Now, I I don't know if you're going to be able to see my thumbs. Got a few nicks on them. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. that that That's through the gloves. Oh. So I don't know what Ross's hands look like today, but. Talk about a man. That was a, He's a man. That's a bold uh, thing to do. Well, that sounds like fun, man. You're pretty, that's like a thing I would do, Bracken. That's like, I like to be one with the earth and the water, and here you are out doing cool stuff. I didn't get my invite. We probably caught, between the three of us, we probably caught 125, 150 craws. That's awesome. It's a lot of work then. <laughs> that, that's the that's the best part. The worst part is trying to eat them. <laughs> it takes Why? five to 10 seconds to get the meat out and you get like half a pinky <laughs> out of each one. You killed an entire life for half a pinky's worth of meat. Well, they invaded... They're an invasive species, Kirk. They're we're right, culling the right. herd is what we're doing. You're doing other species a favor. We naturally have the uh, the blue craws here, and they've been driven out by these whatever they are. They eat everything, mate like crazy. So we should be saying thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I'm a hero, but other people say I'm a hero. <laughs> Who? Name one. Lisa. Wisconsin DNR. How about that? Wisconsin DNR. <laughs> You'll get a thank you note in the mail. 
Uh, did you have a little? Um, did you have a little FOMO this weekend, not being in Utah, or were you like, "Thank God I was not there"? Now, I had a bit of. I'd say I was eighty twenty, Kirk. Eighty what? Twenty what? Twenty percent FOMO, eighty percent. I don't have the fitness to do this. Thank goodness I'm not there. I saw the results come in on Saturday morning and uh, instant FOMO to the point where like it made my like insides feel weird. Like, really? oh no, I made a terrible decision not going because everybody was there. The new players were, you know, obviously I saw the results and I was like, oh man, what a race and the, and the young guns coming in. And then I watched the coverage back when Spartan released it in the afternoon. And I was like, oh, man, I know what a beast course in the mountains feels like. It reminded me of Big Bear, but even grosser. And I was like, maybe my FOMO meter went down from 100% to like 50%. It it brought me back to reality. Um, And then I thought, you know, a lot of these guys, as much as they think they are going to, they are not going to be fully recovered for Asheville in two weeks. If they really went inside out and they had systemic damage, like that course required to run well, I'm thinking like there's a chance that uh, some people aren't going to be at their best in two weeks. So I think it was the right move still not to go. Yeah. I think big picture is the right move. I couldn't help watching that race though and thinking this is a Kirk DeWint course right now with your skill set and your current type of fitness. Because you have a different type of fitness than you've necessarily had in the past at this point in the year. Yeah, my speed is probably behind where it's normally, but my stay power is is really, really good. Um, you know, but you add an elevation at an altitude and and fifteen hundred foot climbs or so at a crack which I have not been doing. So it would have been an interesting shake. I think I would have stuck my nose in there for a change, to be honest with you. But um, let's bide my time for another week and a half. Right? I can, can wait. That's all you can do. Can wait, yeah. What do you make of the results? Well, it was a mixed bag. There was some, I mean, Atkins and Webster won. It's the, the more things change, the more they stay the same. However, the people behind them were not necessarily what was expected. Anna Doobie mm-hmm. or Annie Doobie. And then Rose Wetzel rounded out the the female side. Yep. And then on the men's side, you had our boy, Ryan Schottig and yep. Hawk Call. I couldn't believe it when I saw Hawk Call's name on there. You know, you always think falling in the footsteps of your father, like the kid is never going to be his father, right? Like that's how it works in sports. The kid never lives up to the legend of their father. But damn it, I am a little concerned now that uh, we have somebody in the mix. And and I was thinking, like, put myself in Ryan Atkins' shoes and being like, Jesus, man, I just got rid of one call, finally off, and now the next comes in, and now I'm battling with him. So what a what a cool thing to see. It really is. Now I'm I'm looking it up right now because I want to double check my my stats, but I believe Hawk actually is slower than his dad. At this point in his career at twenty two. At this point in their career, at where Hobie was at twenty two versus him. Um I won't be able to find it right now. But I believe Hobie ran right around fourteen flat in college in the five K. Mm. And Hawk ran fourteen forty three this year. Is it a senior year, Hawk Call? I believe so, yeah. Okay. 
So he's, I mean, he's still in the 14s, but it's high 14s, which there's a big difference between 14 flat and 1443. Hobie might have run 1402. So speed wise, Hawk's a little behind his dad, but he already has some mountain acumen that his dad didn't have at 21. Correct. And he's also grown up playing OCR. Playing OCR is the key. So he's he's ahead of where Hobie was at 21. Mm-hmm. And as we know in the sport, your 5K time does not translate one-to-one. Not, not even, even 0.8 to one or whatever it is. It's It's helpful, but it's not the metric that it is on the road. So very interested to see where Hawk Call goes from here because this was the perfect course for him. Maybe a super. Um, at 21, you're not quite ready for a three-hour race the way you are at 31, just by years of volume. So may, I think a super he would have won yeah. unless Ryan just would have gone out harder. Mm-hmm. But kind of crazy. This was his best course. It's his backyard, essentially. He lives in Utah in the mountains, and this is Utah in the mountains. I would say profile-wise, terrain and at altitude, yes, but duration, not even close, not at that age. No. Yeah. And we also don't know, maybe he's better on the flats than in the mountains because Hobie was at that, at the early stage of his career, Hobie was scary on flat or rolly or technical terrain. And Hobie mm-hmm. developed mountain legs as his career went along. But people don't realize or remember Hobie cramped out of the first Killington race. He finished, but he took third or something like that. And he cr- mm-hmm. dealt with cramps for the last hour and a half. He wasn't a mountain goat yet. And then eventually he won two mountain world championships, but Hawk already can run mountains. It's incredible. And not to uh, get ahead of ourselves, but we do got that young gentleman lined up for an interview that might come out later this week. So Mappy Davis, don't go sniping him on us. All right. Yeah. We got him Toss coming. A, Toss us a bone here, Matt. So that was cool to see. And Ryan, Ryan Shadig did exactly what Ryan, we said Ryan, he could Ryan. do. Ryan. I said Ryan. Ryan. Oh, you did. Okay. Just make did it I sure. If I did, I slur it into like our iron. Yeah, you're getting that Louisiana. I think the crawfish boil summered into I've your got a got a bit of craw. Uh, <laughs> well, well, David McGee said Ryan a few times in the broadcast and then corrected himself. So just want to make sure everybody knows it's Ryan. Ryland Schottig, whom we had on this podcast, and if you are new to it or you missed that one, go back and listen to it because you could see why he did well. He's someone who's still not running big mileage, but he had years of being a pro-level mountain biker. And this race was a great reminder that engine really matters once you can translate the skill of running over. Mm -hmm. And he finished strong, and it was impressive. And again, he is a Utah guy that lives at elevation, that trains in those conditions, Mm -hmm. suited him well. But I don't care if he does nothing the rest of the year. The same with Hawk. We've seen what we need to see already. and. You know, it was less than a year ago when we had a conversation with VJ Jones about where are the young guys in the sport, VJ? Like, why is nobody even coming close to you that's your age or where are they all? And suddenly we got two of them, VJ's age, that popped up out of nowhere in a matter of a month. And so this is really good for our sport. And I was excited to see it. And it looks like VJ was excited to see it. He wants a young crew that can take down the old dogs. He seems to be encouraged by the fact that there's competition out that's good. His age. Hot take. If World Championships was still in Tahoe this year, mm-hmm. we would have a 22 and a 23-year-old in the top five. 
With potential of the top five, yeah. With potential to win. Both, yeah. Crazy. Yeah, and then I want to speak on um, on Ryan Atkins' behalf, and we're just we're just unraveling this race a little bit before we get into our topic today. But um, he made a small comment in his post race interview about uh, I'm in the worst run fitness I've been in in maybe years, and I haven't been running very much. And for the reason for that, I do not know. But then uh, I went back and looked at his Strava, um, and Ryan puts everything on there. Ryan has everything on Strava. Uh, I think he's been running between zero and 12 miles a week for the last month and putting tons of volume in on the bike. So uh, makes what he just did even more impressive living at sea level. I mean, I think he ran like five or so miles last week, Uh, something ridiculous. Obviously he's dealing with something, but uh, to go out and win a race like that on that low run mileage saying self-proclaimed you're in the worst run shape you've been in in possibly years just kind of adds to the, uh, I don't know, the legend he is developing. It's outrageous. It really is. Mm-hmm. Outrageous. So uh, I guess I do want to shout out Rose Wetzel as well. Okay. Rose is perpetually written off. Well, after her comeback. Even before that. Like she was, she took what, third or fifth one year in Tahoe at the World Championships. And then, and then, even going into that, she was not counted as a as a front runner. She mm-hmm. was a short course specialist in people's mind and wasn't good in mountains. And then even since having a baby, it's been I mean her daughter's what? Four now? I think she's so it's been four, four yeah. years. But she's been discounted several times and keeps making national series podiums. So <laughs> this is the first mountain beast she's made a podium in, if I'm correct, at a national series, a big mountain race since probably 2015 so congratulations rose that's a that's announcing you're back in a big way because there's a lot of exciting talent on the women's side you had Lindsay, and you had a whole host of women who all believe mm-hmm. like either they believed it or other people were hyping them up that they are the next big mountain star and rose handled them all yeah in fact i think she was in second until she basically cramped and fell off of uh helix Right before yeah. the finish line. So it was a tight one. It was good. It was good. It's also very interesting to see, you know, we always have these people with potential, these people with potential, and they're still coming out. And, uh, you know, you saw Renee on the women's side who was running with Lindsay Webster. Then they get to Olympus and she hangs there and gets stuck and falls off. And you see like the greenness come through. But she had that happen in Jacksonville. She came back and gave it another run in Utah. And I just hope she comes back for like one or two more because you can tell her running is there, but I don't know how many burpees she did. And so I want to see those people stick it out. We saw Joshua McAdams, who's on the U.S. Olympic steeplechase, uh, what, like eight years ago, uh, come out and race. He must have DNF'd at the very end. He was in the top five or even in the top three until the last mile where he disappeared from the results. So I don't know what happened there. But just be fun to see more of these people stick around because the fields have the potential to be the most dense they ever have. If everybody yeah. stays in the in the mixing pot, you know, this race was another great reminder that at some point you don't want to be out there anymore in races. In training, we often visualize making these heroic moves and momentum building and the crowd cheering, but in these big mountain courses, there's you're out away from anyone's eyes for an hour at a time and you're at altitude and it's hot 
and you're hurting and it may not be going how you think it was supposed to be going. And a lot of people hit that point of, I don't even want to be on this mountain anymore. Or what am I doing out here? And it was a reminder that the people who are successful are the people making moves and attacking in the second half of the race. 100%. And and we talked about it in the preview for this race, but time just evaporates. It just bleeds out as soon as you stop pressing your foot down to the accelerator. Because it takes your foot pressed to the accelerator just to maintain in the mountains. And as soon as you start having that negative self-talk, your time, your pace goes right out the window and you see people dropping minutes and minutes and minutes in the second half of a race. And I'm not saying everyone that had a bad race had that happen because there were cramps, there was heat exhaustion, but there were people who cramped and had heat exhaustion that also were successful. So that I don't want to be out here anymore feeling you can lean into it or you can lean away from it. And it's a really good reminder, I think, to the general populace that everyone's miserable in the middle of a giant effort. But that mm-hmm. does not spell doom. It just it just means you have to make a decision whether you're still going to be successful despite feeling miserable or if you're only able to be successful when you feel good. It reminds me a lot in the opposite end, and then we can move on, is you know, Tahoe in 2018, polar opposite end of the spectrum with the cold and the conditions and the cramping for other reasons. And you, you found out who is gritty and who is not is what it came down to. Like who, who just kept suffering and chose to stay there? Cause everybody's suffering. It's just a matter of what level. Right. And you saw like, for example, Annie Doobie gets off of the rope climb and goes to run and almost falls over and has to step like lightheaded stops and put her hands on her knees. Hot call gets done flipping the tire, goes to run, and looks like he's going to tip over, and he had to stop, like these, and and catch his breath or himself for fear of passing out. Like these people are entering their tank, and that's like the grit factor that came through that I really noticed. Like that's what it took to do well in this course. Like you couldn't be soft. Uh, Anthony Kunkel, our last interview, self-proclaimed as a soft runner. I don't think it would have been a good course for him. But the ones who were tough, man, it was just impressive. It was just impressive. You watch people finish, and usually the top couple look good finishing, and then it gets progressively worse down the line. Mm-hmm. There were very few people who looked good finishing. People were staggering through the last mile of the race. The successful people were staggering. Like you said, it was trying not to pass out rather than sprinting to glory. It was the the people who thought this is miserable success is out the window today were wrong. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was miserable. Yeah. Yeah. It required true misery to be successful that day. That's the best way to put it. And we weren't out there, but I I can imagine those of you who were can attest to that. And then you have the ultra beasters who went out and did two laps plus an extra five miles and that those conditions and got a story for you coming later on that. But my goodness, uh, respect to those who finished that this weekend. Yeah, today, this weekend, I keep saying a great reminder of things, but I think we need to be reminded of those encouraging pieces. And this, it's a great reminder that talent doesn't always win out. Mm-hmm. The people who were supposed to be in the top 10 on paper weren't all there. And right. if they were, it wasn't always in the order they were expected to be in. There were people who were expected to win that weren't in the top 10. So yeah. it's just a good reminder that there are, other pieces to racing that grit forces out of you. And it has a way of leveling the field when things get really nasty. 
It's why we run the race. Sometimes does it feel, Kirk, like races are predestined? They're predetermined. And you start to think like, why? We already know this person's going to win and this person's going to take second. This person's going to take third. So the first available spot is fourth or the mm-hmm. first available spot is second or sixth or whatever it is. And that's just not the case. Yes. If the best people take care of business and nothing goes wrong, maybe the first available spot is sixth. But Ryland took second. And I don't think anyone said the first available spot is second. Right. So it was just, it was cool to re to realize that, yeah, keep dreaming because they run the race for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they don't have any pre, you know, the younger guys don't have any predetermined ceilings that they've, that they've somehow gotten themselves into as far as pecking order goes. And that's uh ignorance is bliss. And for those two guys, Rylan and Hawk, it was. And Annie. And Annie. She, she, she had a monster performance and I don't think anyone was saying like that she, she might win, but she's definitely going to take second. Right. And I'm guilty of it. When that uh, fantasy draft Rich and Jack and I did, I uh, kind of mocked uh, Benny Gifford. Uh, about Hawk? Yeah. The inside information was that Benny says Hawk's just a monster in training. And I said, well, just beating you in training doesn't make him a, a contender to win. It just means he's faster than you in training. And I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, they're eating a little bit of crow here. Well, you weren't wrong. He he was faster than Benny in training. It means he was somewhat fit. You didn't say he couldn't win. I didn't say he couldn't win, but I kind of downplayed the the idea that he might be as good as Benny was advertising. So mm-hmm. Benny, you were right, and I was wrong. Yeah. Uh, should we should we jump into our topic today? This is sort of your brainchild. Do you want to talk about the Spartan situation first, or is that uh is that news rather than running? No, I think the news has been dropped, so I think our thoughts on it are can be can be put out there. If we want to chat it out quick, I think it's worth a, a dabble. Dip okay. your toe in the water, Bracken. Well, the news broke that Spartan was not signing anyone for this year, which I mean yeah. it's July. We Mm -hmm. probably saw this coming, but it was news, the fact that they waited till July and kept people on the hook to say, actually, we're not going to sign anyone this year, but we're doing a favor for you because you all complained in the last year with that protest that you, there were too many restrictions and you weren't free to do what you want. So look at now you get to go do whatever you want. This is a good thing for the sport, Um, but you're still going to have to wear our stuff on the podium and you still got to wear all this and all these requirements and then uproar happened and it blew up. And then they backtracked and said, uh, no, we've solved the podium problem. People know how to dress appropriately now. So yeah, you can wear your sponsors on there, but none of the band sponsors. And then they never said what a band sponsor was, but there was just a, Mm -hmm. it was like 48 hours of turmoil and chaos and everyone ripping on Spartan and, that's essentially in a nutshell, the situation, but Spartan removed athlete support for the year and eventually removed a few of the restrictions on the athletes. Yeah. I mean, they kept in, uh, we all race for free still. So our registrations are paid for. That was the one thing that stayed. So, well, some, 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 yeah. My races are, it it was only a month or so ago that Rose, couldn't rose and alex couldn't get uh nathan to email them back or message them back about an entry into the texas race and then one response was if you agree to wear something 
you can, we'll, we'll definitely do it. And so, oh my goodness, what's happening here? My computer just took over, Kirk. I can still see you. We look good on my end. Okay. Uh, and then and then Rose refused to wear this stuff on the podium. And then there's a whole issue that actually didn't get publicized. But anyways, it was it was only a month ago when when people still weren't getting free entries and couldn't get response from them. So mm. anyways, that's the situation encapsulated in in a one minute description. You have thoughts on it? Well, I go back and forth on it because um, Spartans contracting partners, let's say like Ashok or Gone Rogue or Ascent Protein, are still handing out contracts. And that's where people make the real money through Spartan. You don't make the yeah. real money through Spartan paying you directly. What you do is if you are on the pro team, you are put in their circle and made available to sponsors. For example, that's how I got my Gone Rogue sponsorship. And looks like I'll have another Ashok sponsorship this year, which is only because Spartan, not because of anything else. It's that relationship. Mm-hmm. So athletes are getting paid on those sponsorships. So in that regard, like just being in the door, like if you rely on this for your income, okay, well, most of your income should still be coming to you in that regard. Um, but Spartans also set a standard of paying athletes, some of the high-end athletes anyways, regularly like stipends and a small signing bonus and all of that, that they rely on. And so it's so not so small. Yeah, that's fair. You saw Ryan and Lindsay speak out for the first time ever. And it's because they have substantial amounts they suddenly lost. Mm-hmm. Do you know what that is? Uh, I only know rumor and so I shouldn't speak on it. Okay. Well, you know, so I understand from their point of view for, for me, you know, I, they, they talk about the culture of, you know, people just take anything and say yes to anything. Well, I'm one of those guys who said yes to free races and some other things because I have a life outside of Spartan where I make my living. And so for me, I'm the one who's cheapening it along with the masses, right, that are being on the, the Spartan pro team. And so for us, um, it makes no difference. All we were is racing for free to start with, and we're doing the same thing now. So it's no skin off my back, but maybe we're part of the problem that has cheapened this for others. Um you know, that are relying on this for income. And for that, I don't know what to do with. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm i going to make a dramatic statement that I hope is incorrect. And I'm very open to counter arguments from yourself, from Spartan, from listeners, community members, whoever. I believe that it was a signal that Spartan has officially jumped the shark as an athletic competitive company. And they are now just officially a business, which is okay. But I think this was their kind of line in the sand. Throughout the pandemic, it's been very clear that the the companies who are about athletes and sport have taken a personal loss in order to promote the pursuit of the the competitive side. They continue to sponsor athletes, support them in any way they can, even if it was at a reduced capacity. And Mm -hmm. Spartan officially went the other way. First, they went dark on almost everybody. Impossible to hear back from. Impossible to get in touch with when you need something, but they expect timely response when they need something. And now they're officially saying, we're not going to support anyone because it's been a really tough year, which is factual. But they're wrapping it as a, a gift and it's it it sets a precedent for next year. So next year things are going to be greatly reduced. And they're doing it despite having a huge influx of capital from sponsors, Rakuten in particular, from a few years ago, who gave millions of dollars for the formation of a 
pro league. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to go as far as to say that there's been a mismanagement of allocated funds, but there were funds available that they've decided not to use to support the growth of a sport and other venues that care about that are doing it. So to me, it's the, it's the signal that we used to do TV coverage. Now we don't do TV coverage. Then we went to this bare bones live stream that we paid practically nothing for. Now we don't even do a live stream. We used to pay athletes a lot. Now we're paying less. Now we're not paying at all. All signs to me are trending towards less and less emphasis on the sports side and just trying to grow the, the brand itself to be a successful business. So that's that's not an indictment of Spartan. That's what businesses are supposed to do. But I think it's a death knell for the sports side to some extent. And I hope I'm wrong. Well, if the money's still there at the events, then it's not going to change much, in my opinion, on who's going to show up. If they're still offering cash prizes and the incentive to show up and do well, I don't think it's going to change the depth of the field. Paying Paying pro athletes. It already has. What do you mean? There were several big names not there, and there were several medium and small names who were not there. This weekend? Yeah. Because they weren't they didn't get their travel paid for. I can't say it's for sure why, but if you had been offered a free trip out there, would you have gone out and used it as a training race? Yeah, probably. All right. So and a case study of you and I. Yeah. It's a hundred percent. So my my point is not that people will stop taking will start taking the sport less seriously. It's that Spartans taking the sport less seriously and they're content to coast and they're slowly reducing their offerings to the athletes themselves. So I I just want to be clear that I'm not knocking them for that. I'm just announcing the trend. Well, I think we'll find out uh, this year, you know, that statement has been made and we'll find out next year. You know, if that was if that was an exception, 2021 asterisks, or if we they go back to what I think should be a smaller, highly paid pro team, even keep me off the list. I don't care. Um, uh, That's that's what I would like to see. But again, and then we should move on from this. You know, you do not see uh, brands sponsoring athletes. You don't see the NFL paying athletes. It's the organizations themselves. You don't see this is this is like a study of one. Right. In a sense, it's like the organization is sponsoring athletes, which you never see. And so it's like a it's a tricky thing, man. It, it, they created that expectation because they started yep. doing that, um, which is against the grain for sport, for the organization itself to sponsor. So, like, it's a tricky thing. I understand there's there's a lot of nuances with all of this. And you could argue both sides if you wanted to level headedly argue both sides. But this is an emotional yeah. sport with emotional connection. And that's why people get so fired up about it. I think long-term it can be a benefit, but not the benefit that Spartan's trying to pull the wool over on about. Mm-hmm. I think that long-term, the only way to sustainably support athletes is for brands to run the teams. 100%. Yeah, the, the Spartan pro team is a thing that never should have existed. They did it because no one else would do it. So the fact that they're withdrawing is disappointing, but the fact that it possibly creates a vacuum for others to step in would create a symbiotic environment for the athletes, the sponsors, and Spartan, where Spartan could no longer put their money towards it. They could make money off the teams and athletes could get more money from it. So I think it's a good thing long-term, but I think it's, we're at a dangerous point right now where Spartan needs to be very forthcoming about it and put some guardrails in place so that it works rather than keep saying, oh yeah, it'll be totally back next year. It'll be totally fine. And then next year's not. And it continues the 
pattern of bait and switch and promise things that don't get fulfilled. My hope are back to a small, loved, truly high-end, not saying people on the pro team aren't high-end, some of them, but like getting back to like the true icons. Again, leave me off the list. I don't care. Um, and, and go back to the roots. I feel like it worked very well that way. And then they were allowed to use those athletes as much heavily more promotionally sponsored. You saw them in all, even you, Bracken, like back in the day, you were everywhere. Those athletes got taken care of the way they should. And if you're not one of them, well, then maybe next year after you have a good season. So I don't know. I like that model more. And one last thing is if they have 200 members on the pro team, okay, I would have at least bought a season pass if I didn't race for free, which is like a thousand bucks. You times that by 200 and, and they're losing like, you know, $200,000 in just entries. Cause I would have done it and paid for the races anyways. It's a pretty big hit on their end. If you ask me that pays a number of people's staffs or keep their, their head above water. The fact that they're giving those things out, even as from a business standpoint, stupid, but as a brand, it's like, is what it is. So like I waffle so much on the entitlement side of the athletes being like, give me free races. I'm like, they're just digging themselves a hole by sponsoring me in quotes. I'm not helping. Yeah. Am I? I don't know. I, I can look at it from both sides. I think the return on investments there because having that giant roster justified their expenses to Rakuten. Yeah, that's fair. That $200,000 uh, investment got them 20 point whatever million in return. Fair. So anyways, I'm not going to argue aside. I just, I think it's not good for the look of the sport. But I think there's now a vacuum that could be filled and could be great for the growth of the sport. So we'll see which way it goes. Yeah, still a couple more bucks at the prize money of these races coming up. Everybody will show up with it really just should. much bigger. I agree. Yeah. It'd be a great solution. Um, let's spend a half an hour talking about our topic. We teach people something. What do you think? Let's do that. Good. Yeah. I want to talk about perishable skills. Uh, these, these races that we've witnessed have highlighted the fact that specialists – are winning races, but then that there are also some people that bounce between all styles of races. And a specialist has gone all in on a certain skill and that jack of all trades, master of maybe many or most has targeted perishable skills and always kept tabs on them. So when I talk about perishable skills, I mean things that if you don't train them, you get worse at, even if you continue to get more fit. So an example of that would be that in high school, I ran hills every single week as part of a workout. I was a good, strong, hilly course runner. In college, I ran nothing but flat, flat intervals, flat intervals, flat long runs, flat tempos. And I got very fast at my given event, very fast for me, not for a nationwide comparison, which was the 800 meters and the mile. And I became a much worse cross-country runner. Mm -hmm. Even though my endurance was better, my speed was exponentially better than high school. I couldn't run bad terrain or hills to save my life. So my fitness was higher, but I didn't have the perishable skill of bad terrain and skill running to even translate my fitness over and vice versa. You would see people who get in monster shape, but they really like for the mountains or for the trails, but they lose a little bit of turnover and they lose that resistance to road running impact. And they probably can't PR a 5k right now. Mm -hmm. So little perishable skills, things that make or break a race, but are kind of considered supplemental work to whatever you're doing. That's what I want to talk about today. 
Okay. I like that. What brought this to light for you the most? Was it just watching the races this weekend? Was there something else that you saw out of yourself or athletes or performance wise that made this feel relevant to you right now? Yeah, it was, it was like a 50, 50 thing. The first was going back through athletes that I work with and looking at past training blocks that led to successes in races. Because sometimes you have people that just nail it and other times later on in the season, they don't nail something. Mm-hmm. So trying to find patterns. And the second was knee surgery has been so good for me in terms of my running research. I've just gotten back to my roots of reading everything I can read. Because for a while I was laid up and that's all I could do. And then I was trying to figure out what my comeback plan was going to be. And so I was revisiting everything. And I ended up just making a list of the people in the sport that have desirable attributes. Mm Mm-hmm. And not just the attribute, but the underlying skill that leads to that attribute. For example, Johnny Luna Lima, his downhill is a desirable attribute. Mm -hmm. But the skills that underlie that are incredible proprioception of his feet, incredible range of motion in his hips. He can open up his stride downhill in a very fluid, flexible, yet powerful way and incredible balance at weird angles. So those are three things. You start breaking down the skill needed for that. And you can say, you could kind of create a Johnny in a lab by focusing on proprioception, balance, and hip openness and strength. You maybe can't descend like him, but you could improve your own descending to get to that point. And I started looking at all the main skills in our sport and realizing that a lot of these things only get worked on when you're prepping for a specific race. I might only train to be like Johnny before a mountain race. And I might only train to be as fast as a Woods or a VJ or a Botrys before Jacksonville. But those are little pieces in there that you could stay on top of year round and you just sharpen and shine them up rather than have to recreate them. And so that's what got me thinking about this. Yeah. And recreating them, uh, you know, where are you going to reach your ceiling compared to where you could if you just kind of filtered a little bit of these perishable skills in even if you are training for that flat and fast race still making sure that every seven to ten days you're hitting something of quality going up and down because it just sets you up better uh when the time comes and it's not going to take away from your current task at hand either it's just keeping that edge sharp instead of letting it go completely dull and then having to start all over again with the sharpening process which takes much more time than Yeah. And when you let things go, like you said, it takes more time to rebuild it, but you start at a lower place than you were. And when you keep them in check and you keep them sharp, even if you're just maintaining, you get to build on top of where you were and actually improve rather than continually seek to get back to how I used to be at this. And And I've been saying that that a lot. Oh, everybody has. Sorry to interrupt, but like athletes I have, people in conversations, I just need to get back to where I was in 2019. I just need to get back. And it's a trap because we should be looking to supersede that. Yeah. There's this movie that I watched in college uh, when my roommate and I were on a Val Kilmer kick. We went through and we're watching all Val Kilmer movies. (laughs) Val Kilmer was the man. Yeah. And there was a bad movie. It was called Spartan. It was a bad movie. It wasn't terrible, but it was about espionage or whatever. But at one point, he looks at a candidate for a special forces unit and said, you've had your whole life to prepare for this moment. Why are you not prepared? Mm -hmm. 
And it was like the one thing I took away from the movie. Val freaking Kilmer dropped some knowledge on me that how many times do we get to something that we've had a lot of time to prepare for and we're not ready? Like this moment, like Big Bear, for example. Big Bear was looming all year, all last year. And yet, why were some people not prepared for it? It's because certain things get let slide for too long and you can't pull them back in in time. Whereas someone like Orion Atkins, for example, through injury, through all the other crazy events he goes for, he doesn't lose track of his perishable skills. So he's always better the next year than he was the year before. Even if something has slipped, he has all the other pieces in place to handle it. Mm-hmm. You think that's by design or by love of movement? I think that he thinks through things more than a lot of people gives him credit for, give mm-hmm. him credit for. And I think that his love of being on feet outdoors active covers up for anything else. Yeah, I think it's, I said symbiotic already once, but I think it's a symbiotic relationship he has with fitness in that he loves all things that drive fitness and he plans how to have how to arrive with specific fitness. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we like uh, compartmentalize this a little bit and talk about this, okay. the perishable skills and, and such. Um, and really it's just like keeping all blades somewhat sharp is what we're kind of, this what we're kind of getting at. But if we're going to talk trail running and we're going to talk, I guess, running and then OCR, like what are these perishable skills? If you're going to list them out so people can start self-reflecting on like, on how to approach this, like, where what would be the list we would make? Let's go back and forth. I'll start with one. Technical trail running. The ability to run on very broken ground without well, being able to translate your fitness to technical trail without being significantly worse. Um, this last weekend, we're just going to talk uh, heat. Mm. Ability to tolerate heat. Yeah, I like that. Uh, downhill running. Uphill running. The ability to handle a longer event than maybe what will be in your wheelhouse. So actual staying power and endurance. Starting fast, over revving, and then still needing to sink into a sustainable and workable rate. I like that. Transitioning. The ability to get in and out of obstacles or hills or creek crossings or rock slides, whatever it is, without damaging your gas tank. Um, flat speed and efficiency and turnover. Obviously that's one we got to talk about. And I think we could go on and break down into little things like grip or carries, but those are, those are self-evident. So let, we have a good list of running perishable skills. Mm -hmm. So let's dig right in. Well, we'll start with the first one, which is technical running. mm -hmm. Now there are, I don't want to divide people into two camps, but there are people who seek out technicality in their training and those that seek to avoid it. And it really comes down to what you love, where you live and what you're training for. But it is a skill that can perish. I've talked about James Appleton before, where Mm -hmm. he was a pretty good runner and a pretty good OCR athlete. And then he moved to a new place in the UK and was just running the most ridiculous, rocky technical sections ever. And his training groups were just dropping him. And he slowly over weeks got better and better at keeping up with them. And then went to OCR Worlds and smashed people on the uh, on the team relay race on the technical running portions. That mm-hmm. was a skill that he did not have. And over the course of several weeks, he got it. But if he stopped using that, 
he would lose that. So the technical running skill is a piece that I think you have to have every single week in your training. But it's easy to do that if you only have to touch it every week, it can be one week I just do an easy run on it. Or one week I have a good section in my long run that I keep repeating and getting technicality. And one week I can do one of my quality workouts on a technical component. Or if you're doing your four by four by 400, maybe your middle sets on technical ground or something like that. You can dabble it in there so that you don't have to do a James Appleton five-week buildup to to a race. You can have it in there always and then do a two-week buildup to your race and be right up to or above where you were. Well, yeah, and the key in that too is like if you... I would, I would encourage you to do an experiment as far as technical terrain goes, you people listening. Go run hard on flat terrain, smooth terrain, and then go run hard on technical terrain of similar, at least undulation, we'll call it. I guarantee if you're not a proficient technical terrain runner, your heart rate's going to drop and you're going to be working sub capability because your skill can't match your fitness. And that's exactly what we're talking about. You may have somewhat quick feet, but your ability to do that at a high rate of work, that's the skill specifically we're talking about. And, and if you go out and you notice, like, I can't keep it up because I, can't, I just can't navigate the roots and the rocks and the ruts fast enough and my heart rate, I just can't work as hard as I need to. That would say that that skill to me could use improving. We had a conversation, not to jump ahead, but when we talked to Johnny Luna Lima on our podcast, Johnny Luna Lima told me that he can downhill run and peg his heart rate at 180 beats a minute. Okay. His skill matched his engine there because you should, if you can peg your heart rate at any point in a race at 180 beats a minute, you're working basically at or over capacity. I cannot peg my heart rate higher than let's say 170 on a downhill, no matter how good it looks, right? Because my skill doesn't match my fitness going downhill as perfectly as Johnny's does. And if you look at your heart rate when you're going downhill, I bet you some of you who worked your asses off in Utah this last weekend dipped down into the 120s, the 110s, the 130s while you were in quotes racing. That means your skill doesn't match your fitness. So that's just, I just wanted to outline like basically what it all comes down to is that. Yeah. And this is really easy to judge and easy to work on. You pick a segment of technicality and you work it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And you just watch your pace climb and your tension drop because any one of us could bomb one downhill or bomb one technical terrain section if it was the last 100 meters before the finish line or if it was a 100 meter race we could all get down one hill close to as fast as johnny or we could get through one technical running terrain section close to as quick as an albin or a james appleton but its stain power in there wouldn't be there because we have no efficiency there. We would be tense and and just fighting through it, churning through it, but there's no sustainability. That sustainability comes from using less energy to do the work. And it, it comes when you have to, st- you stop thinking about it and your body just starts doing what it can do. And that only can be done through reps. So you can put in a big block up front, but it really only takes one per week touching technical terrain moving forward to stay on it. And it doesn't have to always be quality work. It really doesn't. Yeah, no, you can do things easy. I'm just going to keep referring to other athletes when it comes to obstacle efficiency and transitions. VJ Jones in a recent interview said, well, one day a week, I just go and do recovery effort on absolutely everything. 
I go through obstacles easy. I run and do all that at a relaxed recovery heart rate. That is skill work. That's a perishable mm-hmm. skill at its finest. And then once a week, he goes and hits it hard when he's actually, you know, pushing lactate. So uh, the good guys are doing it. We've seen a lot of examples of it. But this started with like the technical terrain, and I referred it to heart rate or being able to sustain your effort mm-hmm. over it. And that applies for like all of all of the concepts that we're going to talk about. That's what it comes back to to for me, honestly. Is yeah is kind of relating it that way. Can I access my fitness doing this particular skill and can I sit in it? Or if I can't, then that's something that obviously uh, can potentially perish and something you need to work on. Yeah, if you had a stride power meter on your feet, which exists, they're out there and version two is much improved. It's getting better, that tech is. Mm -hmm. And you were running a technical interval. Say you did a thousand meter technical trail loop. Your first time doing it, if you had run a flat thousand meter time trial and then time trialed your your technical route, you would be less comfortable, more tense, and your power would be significantly lower than on the flat ground. Yeah. And over time, you would watch that power rise and rise and rise as your overall body tension would drop and drop and drop. And eventually you'd be running that section and attacking it rather than fighting it. And that's right. exactly what we want to try to enunciate here is that the efficiency builds, but then you can maintain it just by doing it from time to time. This weekend, Kirk, I did a 60 minute run on an 800 meter stretch of grass in front of the Milwaukee mile, which is the fairgrounds over by my house. I wanted to run soft and I wanted to get some, uh, I wanted to break in that new VJ shoe you and I are, are getting to test out that we're not supposed to talk about yet. Yeah. But I didn't have a ton of time. I only had about 65 minutes and I wanted to get 60 minutes in. So I just jogged 200 meters over there and just went back and forth up and down the grass. There's a four foot stretch of grass next to a fence and a road. And there were some downed trees throughout there. And I was avoiding them and I thought, might as well test out how this feels and do some little bit of skill work. So I started running through the downed little tree branches and twigs and you have to pick your spot and get through it. And the first time I was so slow through it, it was like I was landing and I was a first time triple jumper where you just like sink into that foot and your momentum just grinds to a stop and then jump to the next spot. But -hmm. after going through that stretch of downed branches and brush, after the fourth or fifth time, I was kind of just keeping my, my momentum right through it. Now, you could argue that you're learning that particular path and I knew where to put my feet. And I would argue that that's all anything is. You learn in a controlled environment and you take those learned skills and pathways and you translate it to the unlearned sections and you're better at it. But it only took 35 minutes of going back and forth between I before I felt, A, I'm really cumbersome and awkward through here and I would lose time in a race to, okay, I could accelerate this section and feel good confidently in a race. So it's the kind of thing you can build quick. And I was doing it at my heart rate was probably a buck 30, right? maybe 135. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and to sort of bring this a little bit full circle for me and talking about, you know, you front load a skill and then you can maintain it with much, much less frequency of workouts would be, I'll use Johnny again. And even though he didn't have a great race this last weekend, whatever, man, I can still run downhill, right. Or technical terrain, like, like in nobody, um, you know, and he has a soccer background and, and I do as well. And I was, somebody brought a soccer ball to the gym last week and we were passing it around a little bit and I started moving my feet with it. And it was just like, bam, 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 like all over, like, Oh my God, put me back out on the, on the pitch. I'm ready to play. And I spent 
you know, 10 to 15 years moving my feet quick and putting them exactly where I want to. And now if I go technical run every few weeks, like I'm not losing anything because of that block. And Johnny's the same way. He doesn't need to hit it very often. Just like you with, let's say your, your ball sports. I've seen your, your videos of you going back. How long did it take you to dunk again on a bum knee? Took you two attempts, three attempts. Yeah. Three sessions. Exactly. But, but we're lucky enough to put in blocks of skill work that now bleed into the rest of our lives. But that's what we're, that's what we're kind of talking about again. So, um, what do you want to, and as far as frequency, let's just talk about that. Like, what do you think it takes to maintain a skill, like a perishable skill once you've established, let's just call it a base in that skill. I truly believe once a week is enough for, for a skill to maintain. Now it depends on the technical aspect of the skill. I mean, for a, for a basketball player in the off season is shooting free throws once a week enough to be a pro level? Probably not. They have to do it more often, but there's not a an impact and an endurance component there. I think once a week is enough for a technical skill like technical trail running to be there because I don't believe it involves the physical as much as it involves the those neuromuscular pathways. The focus of the workout needs to be that once a week or just like, a, you know, I'm going to run and part touching of my it. trail, just touching it, brushing touching it. it. Focus, I think, I like every other week for a focus. That seems to be my sweet spot for running-based skills. Every other week, focus on it. Touch it every week at some point. Okay. Um, and then how long do you feel like you you see these? We talked about the athlete who just lets it go completely until the next race requires it, and then they start back from scratch and build up. Like how how quickly can you lose these, these skills? It's a subjective question. I'll have a subjective answer, but what do you think? If, I, I think it's directly correlated to the amount of years you spent building it. And I say years, if you spend months building it, it's going to leave in months. If you spend years building it, it might take years. Mm-hmm. It's, but part of it, that skill will come back quick, but then the muscular component has to be rebuilt. I think about my technical downhill running as probably one of my best pieces as a runner. Really steep, really nasty is probably one of the best things I can do. Mm-hmm. And you and I have raced together on a, on a mountain and you've seen that I can do that pretty well. Well, I went out only a year after when we raced and in West Virginia, I fell apart on the technical downhills because I remembered how to technically run and it trashed my legs so bad that I couldn't maintain it. So the skill will be unearthed quicker, but then the the muscular portion rears its ugly head and said, you're not physically capable of doing the things you're technically capable of anymore. Yeah, that's a classic example of like is it, uh, allowing your fitness to be accessed at that skill if it's not, if it's not yeah. you know, nurtured. So, okay, I was curious what you had to say there. And, and, and I think this is going to lead into flat ground speed because – when you do a lot of flat ground speed, you generally lose some of your technical scramble capabilities because you're just not working on it. But when you put in a lot of technical trail running, which I think I can highlight myself as this example, I went a couple of years where I did not run on any terrain other than trail. And my flat ground speed, my trail speed was still good, but my actual speed was not great. And eventually my trail speed started to get lost a little bit too, because my cadence dropped. Oh, sure. I lost the skill 
a fast turnover and just the ability to run a good, strong, non-trail stride. I lost my road and track stride a bit. I could still run okay, but I was definitely at a disadvantage compared to how I was because I'd gone so long without running fast and smooth and unbroken. Who was it? You have to refresh me and I might be going crazy here, but I thought it was a guest we had on our podcast um, who had said he's a very accomplished mountain runner and or he or she. And it was the fact that the top level guys still prioritize like a fast, flat speed session every week, even, even though their focus is the mountains just to keep their efficiency. Was that somebody in our circle? Or am I, did I, I hear recall. that somewhere? We had talked about it with uh, Joe Gray still does it. Matt Carpenter always did. He, Matt Carpenter would do like 10 or 12 by 400 each week. Joe Gray joins the world-class athletic program, uh, the Olympic runners on the track every week for an interval session. Yep. And he, all he does is race basically mountain races. Nothing but mountains. Correct. So there's, that's just another example of high level racers kind of doing that, not allowing that skill to perish. And they yeah. all bleed, they all feed into one, one another at points. You can't tell me that an entire course is technical, an entire course is downhill, an entire course is flat and runnable. We get it all, right? Yeah. But yet we still like forget about uh, honing in on a lot of the different elements each race requires. Yeah. So. so what I would say, the perishable skill of flat, fast, efficient running and high cadence speed, that is really easy to maintain. And that's as simple as doing strides in a few short intervals up front and then just maintaining with strides or short intervals moving forward. Simple as running some accelerations hard once or twice a week. That's it. You don't even have to dedicate a workout to it. It can be a starter or finisher to an easy day or a hard day. Yeah. Add four by 200 meters to the end of your tempo run or anything like that. Body remembers. Yep. Absolutely. This is the one that comes back the quickest, I think. It feels the worst, maybe right up there with downhill and technical running. At first, running a 4x200 after a tempo feels like you're just a baby giraffe born for the first time. But it comes back in like a week or two. It's amazing, isn't it? How quickly it comes yeah. back. For guys, says two guys who had worked on speed for a large majority of their... That's true. And that's our rose-colored tint yeah. to this one is that we have that skill in our back pocket. It just has to be unearthed. Yeah. Well, one of the next you said was downhill, downhill running. And we, I think, I think we've done a fair job of, let's say, glorifying the downhill running on this podcast, Mm -hmm. but not without good reason. The skill of downhill running, um, very different when, you know, I run downhill every week at some capacity, but I don't always run downhill hard and fast and efficient. In fact, I don't do that very often at all, maybe every few weeks. So this is one of those skills that might have an exception, but I mean, is running downhill slow? Is that working a skill or is that wasted effort? Would you count that? It is a skill, but it's also giving you that resistance to impact. And of all the skills we're going to talk about, I think that downhills have the most important musculature component to it, where you have to be able to endure it. You have to be able to take that pounding and not break down. Mm-hmm. And so I think you can build your skill up front just like any of them but you have to dedicate actual work to it to maintain because you need to be able to handle the pounding. There is, I mean, I've been watching a lot of the golden trail series and they're the people they always talk about and they struggle on the downhill. So they must have a gap at the top. And every time you see, they just get all that work they do up, they get eaten up on the down. 
So that's the skill component. But then the opposite side is the me example where West Virginia, I trashed myself because my skill exceeded my time spent doing it. I had the muscle memory. I did not have the muscle resistance to impact of those downhill pounding to be able to do it as long as the race commanded me to be able to. And now we talked about, you know, well, all you got to do is sprinkle in this skill work a little bit. It can Mm -hmm. be part of a workout. It can be this. I'm going to say that hard downhill running is going to be one of the exceptions to that, as well as hard uphill running, those two. Um, Hard downhill running more so because, you know, for example, this last weekend in Utah, there was, I mean, not a whole lot of flat running. So that means let's just say, you know, five miles or six miles of the course was descending. Well, that does, you can't go descend two, three, four, 10 minutes in practice and expect to know what it's going to feel like in a race. So that's the one where when you're going to do it, it's like when we talk about um, swinging the hammer hard, we better swing in the hammer hard episodes. Downhill would be one of those, like every three weeks you should have a plan to go like a no, what we call a no downhill left behind workout where you're accumulating 20, 30, 40 minutes of downhill work just to make sure you are resistant to that impact if mountain races are on your schedule. So that's the one where I don't know how often you need necessarily need to touch it at a hard effort, but when you do, it needs to be smashed. To I prepare for races, yeah. And I've talked about that study on that eccentric loading of downhill, that eccentric impact of downhill running where you can build it up in four to six weeks and you can maintain it for six to nine months off every 20 days. That yeah. eccentric work is so demanding on the body that the the return on investment lasts for three weeks at a time per workout, which you cannot be said of many other workout types. Mm-hmm. And so this is one where, yeah, all that easy downhill running, easy long runs in the mountains keeps that that impact there. And then once every three weeks, you swing that hammer hard and it's just like you're you're going back for continuing education. Boom. All right. You test it out this week. Good. You still got it. And you can do that for half a year, three quarters of a year before you've got to reset with another mini block again. So you are right. This is the one that you do a standalone workout and you crank it. And then in between, yeah, easy work is just fine. Yeah. And and if we talk about the opposite side of the coin, then the uphill running, there's a little bit more of a caveat there. I don't think as much time needs to be spent at what I would call race effort going uphill. But if you are like us in the Midwest and you have these two 300 foot hills at most at your disposal, I'll still say that the biggest, um, I would say jump in my climb fitness came on my Nordic track where I could go and climb for 30 to 60 minutes straight and just understand what that effort felt like. And so a lot of us have smaller hill terrain to train on. And then we go out and climb for 45 minutes in a mountain race and wonder why we're completely useless. And that's another one where I just, yes, you can do short intervals to over overcompensate for that. And that is effective, but Again, that's one where, yeah, you get your short stuff in, you do your loops on your small hills near you, but then like every two, three weeks, three weeks even, I I would say you need to just go grind, whether that's rent a, I don't know how you get access to something where you can just climb if you don't have access to mountains, but I feel like that's something that just needs to be thrown in again, like the downhills, the grindy long climbs just to prepare you. Yeah. One way to do this in an easy manner is to, each week you replace one quality with an uphill version of the same workout. So maybe week one, you replace your interval session with uphill week two, you replace, let's say a threshold session week three, you replace a long hill session. 
Instead of a long run, you do a long climb session. And it can even be every other week doing something like that. But it keeps you touching upon all those systems and you can do them all uphill. And then before a mountain race, it just takes two weeks, maybe three weeks of intense where almost every workout quality session is done uphill and you're just, boom, you're ready to rock. Ready to rock. You don't even change your training plan. If you have eight by thousand, you do eight by thousand on the treadmill uphill instead. Systemically, mm-hmm. your body doesn't know the difference. It only knows the difference skill-wise. And if you're doing 75% of your quality days flat, you're not going to get any worse by doing every fourth one uphill, but your uphill is going to see significant improvement by doing so. Especially once you want to start focusing on it. You're just going to yeah. take right off from a good starting point. And as we're as we're chatting this out, Bracken, I'm starting to come up with this like training formula in my brain here about yeah. how to do this. Well, I don't know. I feel like the more I sort this through in my head and the more you, you think about physiological adaptation and loss of stimulus and then ultimately fitness, we're talking like that 20-day-ish true range, right? And so like in theory, if you were to do the little sprinkle nuggets of most skills every week at some point, and then pick your three that are going to be needed all season. Let's say one is downhill, one is uphill, and one is technical running, which we see in all of these trail races. Then it's like, okay, this weekend of my long run, it's going to be all technical focus. And then next week, I'm going to go find some vert and climb easy, but smash downs. And then the next week, I'm going to go climb hard. And you could get in a rotation with your skills that need to be sharp. And if you do it right, that leaves room for flat intervals, that leaves room for compromised running, that leaves room for short, spicy hill work. And so like, if you just think of like, I would just say, I like the three week rotation based on what science tells us about what our body knows and does. Mm-hmm. And that formula makes sense to me, Bracken. What do you think? It does. And you can sprinkle in, in a three week rotation. And if mm-hmm. you don't want to disrupt the flow of your weeks, your deload week can become skill week. Sure. You can kick off your deload week Saturday to Saturday. And so you finish up your two or three week on with that first Saturday is a big downhill effort. So you smash yourself and then you're moving into skill week. And then you're midway through your skill week. It's a technical interval session, low volume throughout the week, still hit a technical interval session. And then that weekend hit a, hit a climb long run session. And now you're back into your next two weeks of track intervals and track tempo and long run with surges or whatever. You can hit two weeks straight of training, deload for a skill week. There are multiple ways to skin this cat, Mm -hmm. but your idea of 20 days, it plays well into training cycles. It does. Yeah. And it also plays well into people like myself who like an atypical training week. If you do a nine or a 10 or an 11 day cycle, That just means that you do two quality workouts per cycle normal and the third's your skill day. Mm -hmm. And every single cycle, that skill day is different. Cycle week one of 10 days, it's downhill. Week two, it's uphill. Week three, it's technical. And you're going back through and you're never, ever running out of skill. Speaking of the 10-day training cycle, um, a client of mine recommended I listen to the Strength Running Podcast, which is... I think the number one rated podcast in the endurance world right now. And I gave it a listen because it was a Minnesota person and da, da, da. Jason and I, Fitzgerald. Yeah. Fitzgerald. Very, very good podcast. And I, I scrolled through the episodes and one, uh, one of their episodes in the last few months was an atypical training schedule or the 10 day training cycle. And I thought maybe you and I should dissect that in one of our next training Tuesdays, how to go about it. If you were interested. Okay. In it. I didn't listen to his because 
I didn't want to be influenced. Exactly. So, I like that. So I, I, I wanted to click on it, but I think we should dive into that. Just a side note, hold us to that listeners. Um, but I want to get back to like this perishable skill uh, schedule. And if you are on the seven, which I'm on the seven, uh, most people are on the seven day rotation, which means you, you let the week dictate how your training goes instead of a different cycle. Um, we really have two. I think we have two true opportunities to do real work every week. Too real where I think we can swing the hammer decently hard, right? Oh, Kirk. What? Kirk, I've been looking at a few of your schedules you write, and I know where you're going. I like the way you do this. Wait, what are you talking? Well, why don't you tell me? Why are you creeping on my schedules, Bracken? Well, Sean White's. Yeah, Sean White won this weekend, by the way. Sean White, fist bump. He did. He smashed it this weekend. And my guy, Augie, took second to him as well in that age group out in Utah. You had one, too? I had one, too, yeah, in that age group. It's freaking awesome. I work with a guy named Jared who's good friends with Sean, and they live in the same town. And for a while, we were trying to cycle their training together. But I coach Jared. Kirk coaches Sean, but they train together. So we were trying to make the training schedules mesh a little bit. So I got to look at a little what Kirk does, and I like what he's about to talk about here. What do you think I'm going to talk about? In fact, Kirk, I started using this a little bit in a two or three of the schedules I wrote this weekend for athletes. Because I used to do this back at Leaderboard, and I got away from it to avoid IP for the first year, and then I went back to it. Well, I want to now. I want to hear what you what I what you think I'm going to say. It's going to be embarrassing if I'm wrong. But you have your let's say call it Tuesday, Saturday, big days, and Thursday skill work. Mm-hmm. But you do the same thing. Sometimes it's hill based skill. Sometimes it's carry based skill. Mm-hmm. Very I simple. like that. And then using some Metcon work to round out the skills of OCR specific. Correct. But if you think about it, you know I, I run a very very. I think I have a formula somewhat figured out that I tested on myself and every other weekend is a long run and every other weekend is a quality long run with purpose. And then every Tuesday is some sort of quality session and Thursday is a skill day when races are coming up. So yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, of course. But um, let's just think of a three week cycle and let's think of two opportunities to work on a perishable skill, which we've already outlined what those are. So that's six opportunities, right? You have six opportunities to work did we list maybe six relevant skills, but really you mm-hmm. could put more focus on others. If you just think about it, you know, there's plenty of room. There's plenty of room to figure it out. Right. It, yeah. it sometimes feels like in this sport, there's so much to think about and focus on that. We never have enough time. And it's like, we're just going to be like pretty good at a lot of things, but not great at everything. But I would argue that if you just look at your training cycles and chunks, I think you can figure out, out a way, but it starts yeah. with, yeah, it starts with knowing your weaknesses or knowing what the race demands are coming up. Fred Clary to this day still has had a greater impact on me than any other guest we've interviewed. He echoes in my head more than anyone else we've talked about. And one of the things he likes to say is, is that how the body works? Mm-hmm. And we get caught up in the actual workouts themselves rather than the intended benefits far too often as coaches and as athletes. And at the end of the day, you're training three things. You're training the lungs, you're training the heart, and you're training the body as a whole, the musculature skeletal system with nerves intertwined in there as well. And so if if the purpose of running threshold intervals is heart and lungs based, does the delivery system matter as much as we think it matters? Does it matter if you're running at flat or at 6% incline? Does it matter if you're running 10% incline or 30% incline? Systemically, it truly doesn't. Correct. 
Correct. Now, it does matter from a skill standpoint. But if the skill itself is perishable in 20 days and you're hitting it every seven, do you have a skill problem or do you have a heart and lungs problem that you need to solve? And I'd say you have a heart and lung problem. So if you're hitting VO2 max intervals, you can afford to do some of those intervals in a different plane of movement and you're still working VO2 max intervals. So if we simplify it down to heart and lungs is the purpose of this workout, the delivery system gets to be very flexible. Yeah. And then we go back to our, again, what science says, hold on to fitness or stimulus for 20 days. Then how often does that skill really need to be put in there once it's been established in some capacity? So that can ease your mind a little bit in a sport full of lots of webs to get caught in. Yeah. Training is a equation that then has to be looked at from an emotional standpoint. Mm-hmm. So you build out your equation. I need 20 days here. I need 20 days here. I need 20 days here. I need threshold work. I need VO2 max work. I need long run, blah, 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 whatever you prioritize. I don't do a ton of VO2 max work, but that's just me. And then you build out your schedule and then you have the emotional biofeedback, all of that, that you take into account to adjust things. But if you simplify it down, there's always time to work on these perishable skills and there's no excuse to lose those skills. We're going to do it all the time, but there's no excuse for it from a training perspective. Well, and when you think about it, I agree with that fully. How much does it take to maintain those skills less than you think once they're established? So really there is no excuse. None. Yeah. And None let's whatsoever. Say a, let's say you have a mountain race coming up or the, uh, mostly mountain races, but you don't want to lose touch with your flat speed. Well, that's fine. Let's say, go back to my two quality workouts a week and we look at a three week cycle. So that six quality opportunities, sure. Make three or four of them uphill and downhill work and sprinkle in two others that involve something else. And you're still going to have yourself set up to succeed in whatever you want and still be focused on your current task at hand, which might be an upcoming mountain race. So like, it's not, you got to start thinking and pulling being a puppeteer a little bit, but like it's, it's doable. Yeah. And eccentric loading really starts to manifest above negative 3% decline. So if you can get it at 3% decline, if you can get it at 4% decline, you're kind of killing two birds with one stone. If you're doing technical descents or race terrain descents every 20 days, a big workout, you can afford to run some real interval sessions at 3% downhill. Yeah. And you're going to take some in incredible eccentric loading at 3% downhill because you're running fast. But you can't convince me that if you can run at 3% downhill, that you can't run a fast flat race. Right. There's not that much of a difference in terms of your stride, but there's a big difference in terms of the eccentric loading. So you can really start to blur the lines a little bit so that you're, you're kind of, I don't know, stacking the deck in your favor. It doesn't all have to be 20% decline. Once every three weeks, do 20%, but do some some fire road descents. Those translate to a fast 5K if you want them to. Mm-hmm. Two birds, one stone, as often as possible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know what would do all this for uh, you, the listener? The running public training plan. You don't have to worry about it. We get it all in there. We think that through for you. No, skill, no, no skill perishes. Ever. Right. That I can think of. Now I want to go look back and be like, what are we missing? But I don't think we're missing much. We're not. Not according to the results this weekend. 
Mm-mm. That's a really good Not at all. Yeah. Do you want to hash? I mean, we've been blabbing for a while now. Do you want to talk about any other specifics that, that jump out that need to be covered? No, I think we're at the point where now people are going to be scrambling to sort through information and pick out their truth. So I don't want to muddy the waters any further. I think the point was given. And the good thing to remember is touch upon things in the easy manner weekly, if you can, and every two to three weeks hit something intentional and that skill will not perish while you're training for something else big. And that's the key here. You can train for a big mountain race and be ready for a flat 10 K three weeks later. Mm -hmm. If you stay on top of your perishable skills. Then you're never far away from do it, choosing your own adventure and doing it well. Yeah, it's the the whole point of all of this is so that when you transition from maintenance to building, you build on the shoulders of something. Yes, you're starting at an already established starting point rather from scratch. Yep, yeah, exactly. Um, that's a good one. I, I chat. I think I learned a little something from just chatting through this, thinking about what I'm doing. It's helpful, isn't it? These always refresh us, don't they? They really do. Um, that's all we got today, huh? That's it. If you're looking for something to watch, even if you're not an OCR athlete, go back and watch that that Spartan rebroadcast. They have a 37-minute men's and what was it, like 39 or 43-minute women's. I forget what the, the time on that is, but it's going to get you through an entire workout. They did a good job with it. I mean, you got to wait a day. Uh, I think it's really nicely done. I, I, I'm saving it for a workout. As you should. I watched it last night not working out, which is a no-no because I should have saved it, but I couldn't help myself. And uh, for those of you who ordered shirts, I'm back up and running and in business. Shirts have been sent out, so hopefully you guys are getting those. I know we're a little backed up. And also, if my audio sucks, I have a new recording studio, and I'm working out those kinks because it's very echoey in here. So bear with me as I figure that out as well. Thanks for tuning in. We love the support. We love all the messages we get and keep the love coming. We'll keep the episodes coming. Woo.